For those of you who were here last week and heard the message um, or listened to it online, um, you will probably get this right. But the first one is there in there in that nativity scene, as well as many others, there are how many wise men? Three, right? How many were there actually? We have no idea, right? We have no idea how many wise men there were. There could have been two, there could have been six, there could have been 12. Um, we don't really know. We don't really know. It doesn't say. We know there's more than one, you know, because it's wise men came, so there's at least a couple of them. We assume three because there was three gifts given, we'll talk about today, but we don't really know how many there were. The second one, though, is even more devastating for Grandma's nativity. Maybe it's porcelain. You probably have a porcelain one at some point. Maybe it's wood that's really rustic and cool. You know, whatever. But all of them get this because, you know, the nativity, even, even that one, it's like, you know, it's the stable, right? And so it's the barn or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's depicting the night of Jesus' birth because there was no room for him in the inn. Everybody knows that part. And so we, um, you know, have the barn or stable. But the problem was with the wise men in the night of Jesus' birth is the wise men were not even there, <laughs> okay? Uh, I know, I just crushed some of you and you're... you're complete nativity. Don't throw them away, okay? They still represent. The wise men are real. I'm not saying they didn't come. It's just they most likely came later, okay? Because remember, um, there's several reasons for this, all right? Um, I mean, they came, they saw the star rise and the night of Jesus' birth, and they crossed the desert. You know, they had to travel far. Um, there was a it's not like the shepherds who are out in the fields just outside of Bethlehem and they came in. They were most likely there that night. But um, the, the wise men were, scholars would um, contend because of that and some other, other things that we see that they were most likely, Jesus was probably a year old to 18 months old, could have even been a little bit older by the time the wise men came. So he was at least not a newborn infant the night of Jesus' birth. And, and that kind of changes the picture a little bit. We all have the picture of all of them bowing down to sweet baby Jesus, wrapped up, sleeping in the manger. It changes the visual when you think of them, these wise men coming and bowing down to a toddler. How many of you guys have toddlers right now? Yeah, that's like survival mode, isn't it? Like, it's like, just like, please don't throw yourself on the floor. I mean, go to the store. Like, it's like, can we get through the day without like 12 tantrums? Can they just give me 10 today? You know, or whatever, like, or maybe nine single digits, you know, something. Um, now, I've, I've found out myself as my kids get a little older, they, they still throw tantrums. I'm sorry. It's just like... They're just older, and you feel like they shouldn't, and so it's more frustrating. So they still do it, but still, when you think about Jesus being maybe one-year-old, year-and-a-half-old, it's kind of a different um, picture. And like I said, there's, there's several reasons we see this, but by the, magi the scholars would agree across the board, really, that by the time the Magi got there, Jesus was a little older. And we actually get a clue of that as we look at our text in Matthew chapter 2. And so if you look there, um, just to set this up again... Make sure you guys know what was happening. The wise men say they saw the star when it rose in the east. They travel from most likely Persia or somewhere in that area, across the desert to come. They say, we have come to worship um, the, king, the one born king, um, born to be king of the Jews. And so they're telling this to King Herod, who is the king of the Jews. So he's a little worried about that. He hadn't heard anything about it. They fear that he sends them. Um, there's a whole kind of plot there. But either way, we're going to pick it up in, in verse 10, 10 and 11, which is our text uh, for this series, and I'm going to read in the New Living Translation. It says, when they saw the star, the wise men said, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother. They entered the house, not the barn or the stable. 
It says they entered the house. Because the thing is, what happened was they came to Bethlehem for the census. They weren't originally from there. She has the baby, you know, that night when the, in the, the stable because they don't have any room in the inn. But then they end up staying there for almost, it sounds like almost two years. He was at least under two years old, and we know that from um, some of the, the things of, of what Herod did after that. And so within that, they stayed there because it's not like us. We're like, yeah, throw them in the minivan. We'll drive back to, you know, where we're from in a couple hours. It's like, this is a whole journey. It's not something you do with a newborn. So they're just going to stay there in Bethlehem for a while. And so I'm assuming, you know, the next day, Joseph went out like, where in the world can we stay that's not with the sheep, you know, or whatever, or, or the cows or whoever was there, you know. And so they found a place to stay. So that's even one clue we kind of get that they were in a house at this point. So it was at least after that uh, first night. But anyway, they entered the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And like I said, in, in a, verses earlier, it says that's for the reason they came. They traveled a long way to, to worship him as the born king. And then they opened their treasures and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Three gifts given to Jesus by the Magi, very unusual gifts in our day and age, but very valuable and useful gifts in their day, as well as um, gifts that had very symbolic nature to prophesy who Jesus would become. They gave him gold, which Scott will talk about next week um, on the 19th, um, and that um, represents Jesus as, as king, the kingship of, of Jesus, and we'll hear more about that next week. Frankincense, which we hit last Sunday, and I encourage you, if you missed that, I encourage you to go listen to it just so you can kind of get the fuller picture um, of, of the three gifts and how each of, what each of them say. It kind of helps kind of get the, the well-rounded look there, but frankincense represents Jesus as our high priest, our great high priest uh, that made a way to God. And the third and final is myrrh. Don't you love saying myrrh? Everybody say myrrh. Myrrh. Yeah, it's like you, you feel like a sheep when you say it, don't you? You know? Like myrrh. So today we are talking about myrrh. What is myrrh? You guys don't use it probably on a regular basis at this point. So myrrh is a valuable gum-like substance uh, that is actually used 17 different times in the Bible. Um, if you guys remember the story of Jesus on the cross, it says they mixed, uh, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh to help try to dull the pain, but he rejected that. He refused that because he wanted to bear the full weight um, and pain in force of our sins. Um, and so, but more commonly, so sometimes it would have been used in, as an antiseptic like that, okay? But more commonly, it's very common use back then was an ingredient that was used to embalm the dead. So the myrrh would have been used after Jesus' death to prepare his body for burial. That was one of the things, because there's a, there's a story about him being embalmed, Joseph of Arimathea, another person, they, they helped embalm, embalm that body, get it ready to put into Joseph's tomb that he gave, gave to Jesus. So this would have been the very stuff he actually used in his life 30-some years later for embalming his body. And so myrrh, scholars would agree, represents Jesus as our suffering servant. Or another way to put that would be the Lamb of God that came, uh, who was born to die for the forgiveness of our sins. So how many football fans do I have in the room? Anybody like football? You can admit it. It's fine. I'm not going to tell anybody. I know the NFL gets hard to watch sometimes now. They're kind of trying to ruin it. But it's all right. Let's move on to something else. No. So, okay. But imagine this. Imagine I could tell you, like, with certainty, if I could say, I can predict 
the two teams that will definitely be in this year's Super Bowl. I mean, that would be fairly impressive. I know we're at the point in the season where, like, you know, you know it's not going to be the Lions, you know. It's pretty much from the beginning, but then you kind of get to a point where, like, yeah, it's definitely not, you know, or whatever. Um, sorry, Lions fans, I had to pick on you. Okay, um, but, you know, you get, I, but there's always somebody who comes out of nowhere, you know, and get Mr. Super Bowl. But so it would be pretty impressive if I could say, I can tell you which two teams. But what would be more impressive if I could tell you both teams, but I could also predict the exact score, like to the point that the game would end at. That would be pretty impressive. And some of you are like, I'll take those odds, you know, like, but that would be impressive. But what would be the most impressive if I could predict not only both teams that would play in the Super Bowl and what the exact score would be to the final point 700 years from now, if football's still a thing. It's probably going to be patty cake at that point. But again, let's not get into that conversation, all right? But that would be impressive, right? Like, the others would be like, wow, that was incredible, you know? Like, I, you know, anytime you have a sports prediction, you're like, man, I can't believe I... But what if I could do it 700 years from now? Like, that would be just miraculous, right? Well, the prophet Isaiah did something very similar to that, but obviously much more meaningful than the Super Bowl. And so we're going to spend some time in Isaiah 53. We'll have all the verses on the screen. There's also notes in the back of your seat or um, in the seat back in front of you that you can follow along with. I encourage you to do that. Um, So if you want to turn there, you can, but all those verses will be there for you. So Isaiah prophesied 700 years before the birth of Jesus. I want you to understand that time frame. We're really bad with like big numbers and long lengths of time in our generation. 700 years before the birth of Christ. A very detailed account of what the suffering servant, which would end up being Jesus, did on our account. Isaiah 53, 6 says this. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Now, I want you to understand, Isaiah calling us sheep is not a compliment, okay? How many have ever worked with sheep? Okay, you knew that already. A couple of times were like, yeah, not a compliment. Like, they are not the greatest, like, animals, if you think of a few things. Sheep... Sheep, this is an insult. I'm just going to let you know, like Isaiah was like, we are like sheep. Um, We're used to saying like, you know, the sheep were part of the flock and a shepherd. You know, we get that. But it's like when Isaiah was prophesying, this was not a compliment. Sheep are pretty much known for three things, okay? The first one is that sheep are weak. You guys should fill that in on your notes. Sheep are weak, right? Like they, they have no like really useful or helpful like defensive or offensive features to them like they don't have fangs or like can spit venom or like they can't they they don't even have like sharp claws um they're not really exceptionally powerful animals like you know there's some animals don't have that stuff but like you think of a horse or some of it's like man they're super powerful animals so it would take a lot to take them down you know like sheep are not really powerful you know they just don't they're physically they're just weak you know they just don't have Um, a lot of that. The second thing is that sheep are witless. Sheep are witless. Sheep, well, sheep are dumb, guys. They're just, if you've ever worked with sheep, they're just not the smartest animals. Um, They, they, but they're witless. They don't think for themselves, okay? Where, um, they they follow the crowd. Where the flock goes, they go. What the flock does, they do. Um, In 2000, example of this, in 2005 in the country of Turkey, and this is a true story. I promise you, you can look it up and find the news article on it. In 2005 in Turkey, 
1,500, let me say that again, 1,500 dumb sheep followed each other off a cliff. I am not joking. All 1,500 of the flock ran off a cliff, okay? And I, when I read this, I was like, okay, how long did that take? Like, because you were thinking, like, oh, they all ran off. Like, 1,500, like, think that would take up, like, I'm guessing a good chunk of our parking lot, maybe the whole thing. I mean, this is like a huge flock. And some, I don't know what happened. It didn't say, like, what happened. Something spooked them or whatever, and they started running. And they just, just imagine, like, it had to be a minute or two, right? Like, they're just, like, they just keep running. They all ran off a cliff. Now, the, there's good news and bad news, okay? The, the bad news um, is that 400 of them died. The good news is it's probably the first 400, because no joke, 1,100 of them lived. I'm not making this up, because <laughs> most likely at some point there was a nice wool pillow on the bottom of <laughs> and the others lived, <laughs> like they fell off the cliff and lived. I mean, how insane of a story. You should look it up. There's not much to it. Um, it was a small town somewhere in Turkey. Um, so yeah, they're not the smartest animals, Okay. <laughs> Um, you th- I just think, man, the first few, I get it. Like, you didn't know, but at some point, it's like, I don't see any of them up there. <laughs> like, crazy, okay. They're witless. They're not very smart. Um, and the last thing is this. They are, sheep are wayward. They're wayward. They, they wander. They are aimless. Uh, they have no real direction. They stray. And if we look back at Isaiah 53, verse 6, we're gonna read 6 and 7, it says, all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly. He never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He says, we're the sheep, but he said, but, but G, the, the Messiah, the Christ, he's prophesying, whoever it was, he didn't know it was Jesus. He said they were going to be, they're the ones going to be led like a sheep to the slaughter. Like they're silent before the shears so they don't know what's about to happen. So, and then in verse 3 through 5, it says this. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him. We looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. As when you understand the magnitude of the suffering of Christ, of the depths of his love, you won't casually say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And in our country, that's common. It's getting less common in other, but in our area, that is huge. Like everybody's a Christian, right? Like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Like, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm a Christian. But we won't just check the box. No, when you understand what he did for us, the declara- declaration of divine love, the only reasonable response is to wholly and completely follow him. And today, I'm going to try to help you guys understand. I'm going to try to paint a picture of, uh, uh, describe what Jesus went through. And I'm just, I'm not going to be able to adequately do it. But I want you to understand what he went through. 
So let's start in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night Jesus was betrayed, before he was arrested. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying. He is stressed. How many of you ever been stressed? Jesus is stressed. It says he is in such anguish. I'm in such, such heavy heartedness. He is sweating blood, it says. The, the, the medical term for it would be hemosidrosis. It's when there's, you're so stressed, your capillaries will burst and, and blood will come out in the sweat. He is in such anguish. And he's praying to the Father. And he said, Father, if there is any other way that this could be done. He said, please, Take this cup from me, this calling, this duty that you've given me. He says, take this from me. He says, but not my will, but yours be done. If I need to, I will drink of this cup. Then he's betrayed by one of his own, Judas, with a kiss to his face is the signal. And then he's arrested, falsely accused. He's unfairly tried and he's sentenced to death by crucifixion. They would strip him naked, being exposed and ashamed and just feeling humiliated. They would, the soldiers that were keeping him, they would mock him by creating a crown of thorns and putting it on his head as the king of the Jews. And these are one and a half inch, two inch long thorns that they dug into his head because it stayed there through the whole process. And then the beating would start. And they would take a whip, it's called a cat of nine tails, and they would whip his back with it. And the cat of nine tails, what they would do to make it, it was already painful enough, but they would take like bits of glass and shards of bone and rocks and things and, and put them in there. And so that way when it hit, it hurt worse. Or even sometimes catch and they'd have to pull it out. And they would whip it across his back. Then they would take a signet ring and they'd beat him across the face marking it in there. They would take a club and they'd hit him over the head with it, driving those thorns deeper into his skull. And Isaiah would imply that they pulled on his beard and that he was so disfigured that he wasn't even recognized as a human being. He wasn't even recognizable as a human being. Then weak and suffering alone, they would give him most likely the crossbar some would say the whole cross, but even if it was just the crossbar, it weighed almost 100 pounds, right around 100 pounds, maybe even over. And they would make him carry that 650 yards on a, on a path known as the way of suffering. And so he would very weak and suffering alone. He would take that and try to carry it. And he, one account said he was so weak he couldn't do it. And they had to pull someone else from the crowd to help him get there to a place called Golgotha, which means skull, to be crucified publicly on a cross. Then they would take nails, seven inches or so in length, and they would drive them into his hands, or some would say into his wrists, and they would nail him to the cross. Then they would take those same nails and they would nail him, note them through his feet, and they would hang him up on the cross. And his back so bloody and most likely his internal organs would be exposed and would be rubbing against that rugged cross behind him. And he would hang there and he would be, have trouble breathing and the only way he could get a breath is he would have to pull himself up by the nails that are through him and push up on those painful nails just to catch a breath 
but he could only hold it so long because of the pain. And it wouldn't be long before his shoulders would just be dislocated and his legs would give out and he would slowly, slowly, slowly not be able to catch his breath. And hanging in the heat of the day, shamefully and nakedly exposed, the creation would mock the Son of God, the Creator. And that wasn't even the worst part. The worst part was, the most painful part for him is when the innocent one who had never sinned, who bore the sins of the world, who, he became everything vile and filthy and unholy. He took all that onto him, everything demonic and horrible. He took that on himself. And God in his righteousness and holiness, who can't look upon sin, has to pull away from that for a moment. And, and that's when Jesus, in probably the worst moment of his life, feeling the intimate fellowship that he had always had and known with the Father is broken, and he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said, why have you pulled away from me? Why can't I feel you like I normally would? Because he was taking on all that for us, and they would offer him wine mixed with myrrh to dull the pain, and he'd say, no. I will, I will finish what my Father has sent me to do. And he declared, it is finished. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he made it all the way through and died. And he endured all of that. He gave his life for the forgiveness of our sins. And Isaiah, 700 years before, this ever took place would prophetically declare what this child, this innocent one, would endure and bear on our behalf for our sinfulness. Isaiah 53, verse 8 and 9 says this, unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. How did Isaiah know? 700 years before that a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, who's most likely a secret Christian, who felt bad that he never had done anything, he, so he gives him his tomb, a rich man, for Jesus to be buried in. And in verse 11, it says, when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. A lot of people ask, what sets Christianity apart? From all, there's, it's one of the religions of many that, what sets it apart? It's the, it's the bloody and brutal death of an innocent victim. It's the sacrifice. It's the lamb of God and what he gave. You know, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament, to something called the Passover. We mentioned it earlier today. Once a year, God would execute his temporary judgment on the people. He would, it goes all the way back to Egypt when he was gonna execute his judgment on the Egyptian people and he said, you need to do this 
to, to, to save yourself. And then they would, every year, this would happen. This, every year there'd be this symbolism of when, when God's judgment comes, this is what will save you, okay? It was his, God's righteous judgment on the sins of the people. And what could protect you from that? It was the blood of an innocent lamb. A family would take an innocent one-year-old lamb and they would sacrifice it, okay? And they would actually eat of that. It was the Passover meal. They would eat that and they were supposed to take the blood of the innocent lamb and they were supposed to put it on their door frame, on the doorposts and on the sides. And even all the way back then, you kind of get this picture of the instrument of torture that Jesus would be on years and years later. And then death, when that, because of the blood of the innocent lamb, death would pass over that house and the mercy of God would be fulfilled. So what separates Christianity from all other world religions is that God would become flesh, that he would be pierced for our rebellion. He would be crushed for our sin. He would be beaten so that we could be made whole. And by the stripes that he bore on his back, we could be healed. He took that on for us. So when you see the wise men giving the gift of myrrh, which would be used to embalm the dead, God was foreshadowing what was to come. The Lamb of God would be slain for the sins of the world. And Jesus understood this. He even prophesied this himself in Luke chapter 9. You see this. It says, the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. This is Jesus talking to his to his followers at the time. He said, he will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law, who are the ones that accused him, by the way. He will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. And he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. Guys, this was written before the crucifixion. He was prophesying even the, 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 the way he would die. And he, he said, the, the response to that is you should take up your cross every day and follow me, your cup to drink from. But it says the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. And he endures, he endured all of this for you and for me. So here's, here's the bottom line. God loves you so much, he sent Jesus to save you. God loves you so much, he sent Jesus to save you. You see, when you get a better picture of what Jesus went through, what it means that God gave the sacrifice that was Jesus, his son, and all that that entailed, all the suffering that had to come for the innocent one to take on the guilty's sin, it kind of gives us a new perspective on what is, is the, the most popular verse in the whole Bible, John 3, 16. And we all know it so well, and you just kind of say it like, a, I said, for God so loved the world, he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to suffer, to take the penalty that they deserved, so that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life because the price has been paid. See, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is our suffering servant who died so that you could live, who died so that I could live. 
And all those years ago, when the wise men brought an embalming ingredient, they were saying this one, what God was saying through that is this one will be the one that dies for your sin. This will be the one sacrifice, the one true innocent lamb that will die to take away the sins and death will pass over you, not just for this year, but for all eternity. And so if you believe in him, you will have eternal life instead of death, amen?